0: Good afternoon, everybody. It's PFTPM, Tuesday, November 10. Shireen Williams, Mike Florio here with you. Shireen, how are you doing today?
1: I'm fantastic, Mike. It's good uh, to be on a Tuesday here. Not a ton going on, but enough going on as it is every day of the season.
0: Oh, and there's plenty going on as it relates to the NFL because the owners met virtually today as they have been doing since the pandemic began, and we have... Some developments. First of all, the NFL has approved a plan for a 16-team postseason in the event that any games are lost due to the pandemic. So far, through nine weeks, every game has been played, but we see the numbers going up. We see the positive cases going up among nfl teams players placed on the COVID 19 reserve list multiple every day staff members testing positive it just feels like it's a matter of time before the nfl needs an 18th week to the regular season there won't be a 19th week there would just be an 18th week and if any games aren't made up within 18 weeks then it's a 16 team postseason just like it was back in 1982 Shireen, when we were seniors in high school i assume you were a senior in 1982 true or false
1: Uh, that would be, I graduated in 83. So 82, I would have been a senior in the fall. That's correct.
0: That's that's right. That's right. We we suffered through the strike. I remember the strike all those weeks without football. It ended up being a nine game season. And then they had a 16 team tournament. So that's what would happen. And I'm fine with that. It doesn't completely take away the unfairness of determining who gets in and who doesn't based on winning percentage, right? It just moves the argument from seven versus eight to eight versus nine because if that ninth team would benefit from playing an extra game and had missed a game obviously or if the eighth seed only played 15 and maybe if they played one more they would lose and they would fall out of the chase there is that potential for a sense of of inequity but what the hell, I'll take a couple of extra postseason games and wild card weekend, make the one seeds play the eight seeds, maybe it'll be two teams from the same division, and the eighth seed will create some chaos by knocking off the one seed.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, Mike. It's a lot like what baseball did, right? They expanded their playoffs, and... In the end, we probably saw the best team win the championship. And, and the best team's going to come out of this thing winning the championship. We talked a lot about the COVID cases going up. Doesn't it just seem like we're on the verge now of adding that extra week to the regular season? I mean, it just seems like we're getting really, really close to, to games being postponed where they can't be moved around and all of that with bye weeks being gone. It, it, it seems like we're getting to that point pretty close.
0: All it takes is one game at this point, and it will be an 18th week. And it's going to be a game that can't be made up that week because there's no place else to put the game if one of the teams has already had its bye week, unless you expect the team to play twice within a week, and that's not going to happen. So that's where the 18th week would be. And, you know, there was the suggestion from Chris Mad Dog Russo several weeks back. I was on his show, and he said that the 18th week, the extra week, should go at week 17, then week 17 goes to week 18. And that's where the season comes to a crescendo. I don't think they would do that. I think they are now wired to get the games in ASAP. And even if it means taking the risk, because let's say say here's what happens, Shereem. Week 17, they finish the season with the scheduled games. Week 18, there's two, three, four games left. They play those games week 18. They all are completed. So there's no 16-team playoff field. You're going to have the one seeds go three weeks between games. Three weeks. And four weeks if they decide having the one seed locked up before week 17 to shut down the starters like the Ravens did last year. So that's the one donut hole here. They need a week 18, but they still get all the games in. You're going to have the one seeds with at least three weeks off between games. Potentially.
1: And it... I am curious, Mike, if those games don't mean anything, do they just throw that week 18 out and go, we're done with these games, we're moving on? And another thing we didn't talk about is lost revenue from from this season. And the added added playoff games, let's be realistic, would make up for a lot, not a lot, but some of the lost revenue that they have uh, for this season.
0: Well, I agree with you, and two things. First of all, The union is not going to want to ditch meaningless games because if the players don't get paid unless the games are played, the players want the games to be played because, voila, we get paid. Secondly, when you consider that Week 17 is always divisional games, I can't imagine that there would be a ton of completely and totally, utterly meaningless games, uh, except maybe between the third and fourth place teams in the NFC East, if that's what it comes down to. But it seems like most of those games are going to have at least one team that, that would be relevant. Of course, that's week 17. The postponed games, we don't know. So never mind. Ignore that. Forget forget everything I just said for the last minute. No, <laughs> I wondered where you were going with back. that. So, so <laughs> I, I wish I had, or I wouldn't have gone there. But but uh, you know, here's here's my point. As the season's coming to a conclusion, it seems like most of the games are relevant in some way, shape, or form. And I have a feeling those extra games, however many they would be, this is my effort at trying to recover here. One, two, three games. Chances are it's going to be relevant. Chances are there's going to be some connection to whether or not a team's three seed, four seed, division winner, or top. Wild card. whatever the case may be. There's too many tentacles between these teams. That's what I was trying to say. And again, as it relates to the money, the players want to get paid. So the players are going to say, we don't care if it doesn't matter. We want ours. Let's play the games. So we'll see. We'll see. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. But that is just that thin, narrow possibility of Week 18, all games played, 14-team playoffs proceed one seeds potentially end up with three weeks off, which, hey, deal with it. I mean, look, good. you get three weeks off, fine. Find a way to keep your guys in shape and ready to go, and they'll be completely rested and healed, and maybe have a guy who was injured who's ready to go, who wouldn't have been. So they're not worried about those details. They're just worried about getting the games in and then getting the playoffs in. The owners also have approved a proposal to incentivize the development of minority coaches and executives. That's a story Peter King had over the weekend, and it's very simple. There's no reward for hiring a minority coach or general manager. At one point earlier this year there was a proposal that teams would be rewarded with compensatory draft picks for making those hires. There was great pushback, and rightfully so, because why do you reward someone as Tony Dungy said for doing the right thing? The reward now comes for developing the candidate who becomes a head coach or a general manager. And if you have an Eric Bieniemy for example who becomes the head coach of a team like the Texans next year, the Chiefs get the way it was proposed, two third round compensatory picks, one this year, one the next year, if the coach or executive worked for you for at least two years. I have no problem with this because everything the NFL has tried to increase diversity in the ranks of coaches and executives hasn't worked. So the incentive here is to have a robust and inclusive pipeline that will then allow minority candidates the same opportunity. And we get away from the who you know and who you're related to to create these chances, and you create the incentive to, to break from this mold where, and we see it all the time, who do coaches hire? They hire people they know. They hire people they're related to. They hire people related to a friend of theirs who's coaching another team. So it's not direct nepotism, but it's indirect nepotism. It happens all the time. So this is, I think, an effort to to shake away from that a little bit and see if it works. And, and it, can't, it can't hurt, Shereen. They may as well give it a try.
1: Yeah, I actually like it, Mike. And the only negative I see, of course, is a team in the same division, say, the Broncos are looking for a head coach. They may go, nah, we're not going to hire Eric Bieniemy because we don't want the Chiefs to get two extra third-round picks. That's the last thing we want to see is them get extra picks. But otherwise, I really, really like this. And I do think it will help. Uh, with minority hirings, not only at the GM level where there's only two, not only at the head coaching level where there's only four, not counting the two interim guys, but at a coordinator positions, assistant positions, because you want to groom those guys to come up, so you do get those draft picks. So, three of the last 20 head coach hirings, Mike, not counting the interim jo- jobs, have go- have not gone to minor- have only gone to minorities. So, three of the last 20. That's just not enough, and something needs to be done. For more of that, I think this helps. I think it does incent- incentivize uh, those lower level positions because you want to groom them to come up.
0: There's always the potential for unintended consequences, but I-, I think in this case, who cares? Let's just give it a try and see if it works. And if it gets to the point where it's working and we see greater representation of minority coaches and general managers, then then you can you can end that practice. You can go back to the way it always was because the teams will have gotten away from this this time honored tradition. And, and, you know, y- you rarely hear people criticize coaches for engaging in blatant nepotism. And I think one of the problems is ownership always does it because it's a family run business. In many cases, who are you going to give it to? What are you going to do when you die? Just tell your family, oh, well, we don't want any nepotism, so go sell the team instead of one of you running it. And I think it becomes potentially hypocritical for, let's say, Robert Kraft to tell Bill Belichick you can't hire your kid when Jonathan Kraft is working elbow to elbow with Robert Kraft to run the team. I think that's part of it. And I also know from talking to coaches that it's it's a way to make up for all those years of not being around. Kid grows up, kid comes to work for you, and you are together an intensely crazy amount of time after 18 years of dad never being around. And I think that's part of it, too. So, look, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just the way it is. But this new approach could break away from that and create more opportunities. Because I think what is wrong about it, if you are getting people who are getting jobs based on who they know and who they're related to, you're not getting the best people in those jobs. And then the best people aren't percolating to the top of the profession, whether it's as a head coach or a GM, Shereen.
1: Absolutely, Mike. And you look at the job that Raheem Morris has done in Atlanta, and I sure hope that the Falcons give him a chance to get the head coaching job, give him a second chance. He obviously was the head coach in Tampa Bay for a while, but he's done a fantastic job there. And you look at the minority coaches now, Ron Rivera, Mike Tom, they're doing great jobs. I know we're going to talk about Anthony Lynn a little bit later, who's had a rough season But these minority coaches are doing great jobs. You see the job that Eric Biennemi is doing in Kansas City, and you hope he's the next to get the chance. He should have gotten a chance, if not this year, last year. The last couple years, he should have gotten a chance, and he hasn't gotten that yet. And I hope somebody does give him a chance this offseason.
0: Antonio Brown is back in the NFL. He played on Sunday night, 39 snaps against the New Orleans Saints for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. We didn't talk much about him because the Buccaneers got beaten so soundly. There were 50 other storylines, far more important than Antonio Brown. Before the game on Football Night in America, we discussed various things relating to Brown's return to the NFL, one of which is the potential for further action to be taken against him by the NFL. Remember, he served an eight-game suspension But no action had been taken, no punishment had been imposed for the pending civil lawsuit alleging sexual assault and rape. That was the September 2019 filing that landed just a couple of days after he signed with the Patriots and started this process toward him being, as a practical matter, suspended without pay all of last year because there was concern that if a team signed him after the Patriots cut him, the league would put him on the commissioner exempt list and you'd have to pay him while the league doesn't let him play because of this very lawsuit. Well, this lawsuit is still pending. It's supposed to go to trial in December. My understanding is it's highly unlikely that it will go to trial in December, which means there won't be any type of a finding, any verdict, any outcome that the league could say, okay, wait a minute, we're going to take action against Antonio Brown because he was found legally responsible for sexual assault or rape. There's been a development today. The plaintiff in the case, Brittany Taylor, has filed for permission to submit an amended complaint, which is fancy lawyer talk for saying she wants to change something in her formal paperwork, initiating the lawsuit. And what she wants to do is make a claim for punitive damages. Now, frankly, I'm surprised she didn't already ask for punitive damages because anytime you're dealing with intentional misconduct, one of the things you always ask for is punitive damages. You're eligible to get them when there's an intentional act that violates the rights of someone else. The idea is the legal system punishes the person who did it as an example. You make an example of the person primarily to let other people know this isn't the way you should behave. And if you do, you have to pay more than whatever it takes to compensate the person for any harm they suffered. So the bottom line is she's seeking to add a claim for punitive damages. And with the motion for leave to file that claim, a an affidavit has been submitted and, you know, it reiterates all of the worst things that she alleges against Antonio Brown. And it concludes at paragraph nine with this. I told him no and begged him to stop. And Brown lifted my dress and raped me as I was protesting and crying. I never consented to any intimate contact or sexual intercourse with Brown. He raped me. So that's the allegation that is still pending, Shireen, against Antonio Brown. Not only is he on felony probation for the incident with the moving truck driver that happened earlier this year in Florida, someone is alleging that Brown raped her. And uh, look, if if a jury finds him responsible, the NFL is going to have one hell of of a mess on its hands because it will have let him play the rest of the 2020 season and however long it takes into next year before taking the kind of action that... Maybe the NFL should have come to that conclusion, talking to her, talking to him, reach a conclusion. They reach a conclusion with everyone else. Maybe they should have reached a conclusion with him. And if it turns out that that he's found to be responsible for this, I think that's going to be a tough question the NFL has to answer. Why didn't you come to that conclusion if a jury in Florida came to that conclusion through the legal process?
1: Yeah, Mike, as you're sitting here describing all this, it almost reminds me of the Ray Rice case, you know, when the NFL acted and suspended Ray Rice, and it certainly wasn't long enough, and they received a lot of criticism for that, and then the video comes out, and oh my gosh, we're in a mess, and of course... Ray Rice never played again, and and that's what this reminds me of from the standpoint of, as you said, if, if, if all this plays out and the NFL could ha- have a huge mess on its hands and have to explain why did we let him back in the league when we shouldn't have, and I know he sought a lot of help, and we haven't heard a lot about him off the field in recent months, and I truly hope this guy has turned his life around but there are still a lot of demons out there that ha- still could rear their ugly head as we move forward in this case.
0: Now, and th- think about that. You know, it's it's good that you mentioned Ray Rice, because there was one thing in Ray Rice that changed everything for the NFL, turned the league on its head and threatened the reign of Roger Goodell. And that was the video that ultimately came out. There's never going to be video here, but. This is a serious accusation that is being made against an NFL player. If it's true, if the, if the league would ever conclude that he did it, I can't imagine the league ever letting him play in the NFL ever again. So the idea that the NFL just kind of decided to casually kick the can and say, "Well, we haven't reached any decision," I, I you know, I, I, I th- my guess would be the NFL has decided based on its investigation that he didn't do it but that they don't want to make that a final conclusion in the event that a jury in Florida finds that he did that because if the league really thought that he did it if after interviewing her and him and gathering whatever other evidence they gathered over the past 12 14 15 months if they think he did it why in God's name did they not punish him for it so that's my guess they believe he didn't They believe the evidence won't show that he did it, and if a jury finds otherwise in Florida, they reserve the right to swing back around and take action. But if that happens, if that happens, they're going to have, I think, a mess, and they will have tough questions to answer. And there's going to be a lot of who knew what and when, and what did you find out during your investigation, and why didn't you come to the same conclusion that the jury in Florida came to? So, uh, again, not likely to happen in December but likely to happen at some point in 2021 unless the case is settled or dismissed. And I don't think either is going to happen. Ben Roethlisberger Steelers quarterback placed on the COVID-19 reserve list because he sat next to Vance McDonald on the flight back from Dallas on Sunday, McDonald, another one of these guys falling into that donut hole game day testing sample collected in the morning result comes back positive. Anyone in close contact with him goes onto the COVID-19 reserve list for five days. Roethlisberger and three others must isolate for five days and test negative before returning. So what that means is, just like Matthew Stafford last week, Ben Roethlisberger is going to be unprepared from a practice standpoint to face the Bengals on Sunday. Now, he may not have practiced very much anyway. He never practices on Wednesday, Shereen. But still, he is going to have to participate in video conferences only as they get ready for a Bengals team that's had two weeks to prepare. And that, frankly, is good enough to beat the Steelers because the Steelers have only had one convincing win all season long.
1: Yeah, Mike, and you said he might not practice. That's what's going to be my point. You know, he has the two knee injuries. And so I, what kind of what kind of rehab is he doing right now? Is he having to do this at home? Is he getting to go to the facility to do this? Right? He's not allowed at the facility, right? So he's having to do this rehab on his own with his knees, I assume. is.
0: Is Great point. He's got to isolate for five days. I mean, he's got to isolate. He's got to isolate for five days. He's potentially going to infect whoever would come to his house and work on the knees there. So that's a potential problem as it relates to rehab. And, and maybe it will be. They, they send him all the equipment he needs and he's going to be doing his own physical therapy. From from home, or uh, you know, if, if his spouse can be shown what needs to be done, it, it, again depending upon what they're doing to address these knee injuries, that becomes a complicating factor as well. That's a good point. Here's Mike Tomlin, coach of the Steelers, talking about Ben Roethlisberger missing time this week.
2: You know, I'm not overly concerned about it. This guy's been doing his job for 17 years. Um, he's got snap experience that he can call upon. Um, we're still going to work extremely hard virtually um, to prepare. Um, A lot of his work is above the neck anyway, Um, in terms of preparation. uh, I have very little concern about it, to be quite honest with you.
0: And and look, I I don't expect Mike Thomas to say anything else. He's not going to make any excuses. He's not going to say, well, we may as well just not even play the game this weekend. They deal with it, whether it's injuries, whether it's unavailability due to COVID. This is something the Steelers haven't had to deal with all year long, Shereen. It just started recently. And, and I think it's indicative of the reality that no matter what a team does to try to avoid it, there's still too many people who go out into the community every night. And as the numbers go up in our communities in the communities where the NFL teams are located, you're going to have people show up for work who are positive for the virus and they're going to potentially spread it before anyone knows they have it. So anything other than a home market bubble This is just part of the reality of the next eight weeks in the NFL, and we can only hope they hold it together and hope they'll have a home market bubble or something closely equivalent to it by the time the postseason rolls around.
1: And Ben Roethlisberger, before the season started, Mike, said he was going to do all this, the, the right things, not have anybody over at his house, no visitors, no friends, no family, nobody to come to the house. He was going to homeschool his kids. He's going to basically isolate at home, which now he's been around Vance McDonald, who tested positive, who he was seen talking on the sidelines to without a mask and then sat next to him on the plane. And so here we are with Ben Roethlisberger, possibly maybe getting COVID himself. Uh, We'll see. Hopefully he doesn't and he can return and and play this weekend and and get back out there. But it it does tell you that you can be as safe as possible and you still just never know. You may be around someone who has COVID-19. and. I think it's a lesson for all of us, right? I mean, we see the cases going up—six straight days of a hundred thousand cases in this country—and you just—you unless you just isolate in your house, you just can't be a hundred percent sure that you're not going to be around somebody who has COVID nineteen.
0: And I, I, I think that that's a critical point because the NFL says that they're going to assume that everyone who walks through the door has it. We don't see on the sidelines during games behavior that would suggest that the players and the coaches are making that assumption. If anything, they're assuming everyone's clean. I mean, I I was watching the Jets game last night, and you've got Dow Loggins, the offensive coordinator, with—I mean, why even have a mask on? If it's basically going to be something to catch the food that falls from your mouth, right— why the hell even have the thing on? And you've got guys sitting elbow to elbow on the bench. One has a mask on, one doesn't. And I, I, I feel like most of the guys on the sidelines, when they wear masks, they don't have their noses covered, which is asinine. It's just flat out asinine. What's the point if you don't cover your nose? Your nose is one of the main entry points of the virus. It's more important to have it over your nose and your mouth. So my point is, I feel like they think that once it's time to go out onto the sidelines, they, they've got some safe harbor that they, they don't have to worry about. It. That's where they have to worry about it the most, Shereen. And we're finding that out. And they have to get that message through to the players and the coaches. And I just feel like they can't, they can't deal with that while they're worrying about trying to win a football game. Maybe they'll get there by the end of the season. Maybe they won't. We'll see. All right, let's take a break when we return. Our rewatch for Week 9, Dolphins-Cardinals, Kyler Murray versus Tua Tagovailoa. We'll break that game down when PFTPM continues right after this. Tuesday edition of PFTPM every week we select a game to take a closer look at and break down in this spot this week one of the best games of the weekend one of the most exciting games of the weekend the game that I hoped Saints Bucks was going to be nope it was Dolphins Cardinals 34-31 exciting game pitting Kyler Murray against Tua Tonga Vailoa let's get right to it we break it down into various categories to provide the framework for discussing the game best player on the field that day Shereen who do you have
1: well, I think it has to be one of the quarterbacks, Mike. And I went with Tua simply because quarterbacks are judged on wins and losses. And he won the game, and he's two and zero despite his ugliness of week of his first start. Uh, he looked much better in this game, twenty of twenty eight, two hundred and forty yards, two touchdowns. But the key thing, Mike, no turnovers. Kyler Murray had the big fumble that led to a defensive touchdown. And the other big play he had was on third and one with 105 left. He did the quarterback sneak for a first down, and they were able to take knees and run out the clock. He had seven rushes for 35 yards. I just thought he was very impressive in his second start. That's what I expected in his first start. We didn't see it. Maybe it was nerves, whatever. Maybe it was playing that Rams defense, whatever the case. He looked much better in this game and played a heck of a game and is a big reason the Dolphins have a lot of hope, not only for this season, but for the future.
0: Yeah, and he seemed to get better as the game went on. He settled in. He was more confident. They trusted him more. And when it was time to try to go win the game in the fourth quarter, he did it. First, he had to tie the game up with a touchdown drive that made it 31-all. And then he put the Dolphins in position for the game-winning field goal. Tua was awesome. Now... Does it mean he's the guy for the next 15 years? Not necessarily, because the injury issue is still there. When he fractured the hip last year, one of the first things the general manager said to me is, look, three years at Alabama, three lower body injuries, that is a concern for a quarterback who has and who uses mobility. So let's keep our fingers crossed that he can stay healthy, but he has looked very good in his second start the first start was an incomplete the second start was an a plus got the win on the road against a good cardinals team and for me it's the other quarterback one of my favorite players right now in the nfl kyler murray the guy is incredible they incorporated a lot more in the way of designed runs this week that's a point chris sims made earlier today on pft live and the film bears that out just get him the ball and let him go he knows how to avoid contact now he was a little more aggressive running the football and he did get popped a few times but for the most part he's smart about avoiding taking the kind of hit that could potentially get him injured he had a beautiful throw to Christian Kirk for a touchdown uh just 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 everything about him is fascinating he throws it well he runs it even better and you know he arguably did everything he could to put the Cardinals in position to either win the game or force overtime and we'll talk more about some of the things that kept that game from being even more compelling than it could have been but but it wasn't Kyler's fault he didn't make some huge mistake that caused the Cardinals to lose the game. He did everything in his power to will that team to victory.
1: Yeah, I would say the one play, obviously, which maybe it wasn't his fault, but the one hit he took early in the game, the fumble that was returned for a touchdown, probably ended up being the difference in the game. But, you know, he he usually gets away from those, and I was surprised that they were able to track him down because they usually don't track him down like that and make him lose the ball. And, and the Dolphins did a really, for the most part, did a really good job. I know he had over 100 yards rushing, uh, but but they made some big plays on defense too, and that was one of them. And they just seemed to keep coming up with those big plays on defense.
0: See, and I'm glad you pointed that out because, yes, that's on him to a certain extent. But when it's 31-24 in the fourth quarter, the Cardinals are winning, That that's ancient history. Down the stretch, when it mattered, the opportunities they had, that's when I think he did everything in his power and there were others who maybe let the Cardinals down and kept Kyler Murray from being Kyler Murray and allowing the Cardinals either to force overtime or to win the game all right someone who was better than you thought before you took a closer look at the game Shereen
1: Well, you know, Jason Sanders doesn't usually come to mind when we start talking about the best kickers in football, but this is a guy who just set a franchise record, 20 field goals in a row, 17 this season, three obviously last season, so he's on a a big streak now, and they were not easy kicks. He had a 56-yarder and a 50-yarder, and the 50-yarder ended up being the game winner. You look at what Zane Gonzalez did or didn't do for the Cardinals. He missed a 49-yarder short that really cost them a tie game and a chance to go to overtime. And, and he was just terrific. And I, I think that, uh, when we start talking about the best kickers in football, we need to put his name right there.
0: Yeah, I agree with you completely. Look, what matters is making the, the kicks that win games. And he did that. And, uh, that's the clutchest moment that you can imagine on a field for a kicker. And he delivered, I'm going with Emmanuel Ogba. Um, he, he had two plays that really stood out. We've already talked about the forced fumble. I mean, anytime you can hit Kyler Murray and cause him to lose the football, that's a good day. You could just walk off at that point. But then he tipped a pass later, and he's just a guy who's on the rise for the Miami Dolphins. A guy who was with the Browns, and he, he lost out in a numbers battle once they had Miles Garrett. And they picked up Olivier Vernon, and they really didn't need Ogba anymore. And the Dolphins said, fine, we'll take him. And I think they're grooming him into a potentially special player. But, but that's a guy who, who stood out to me watching the game again, especially with those moments in the first half, Shereen.
1: Yeah, and you know, when they signed him in the offseason, Mike, they gave him two years of $15 million, I think guaranteed $7.5 million. I thought, what are they doing? That's too much for this guy. But he's been everything they thought he was going to be. Career high, seven sacks, career high, three forced fumbles. He's been really good for this defense and really a difference, difference maker for them this season.
0: Yes, okay. Who had a day that they would like to forget after your further and closer ex- inspection of the game, Shireen?
1: Well, you know, Mike, in, in retrospect, I think Xavier Howard did a really good on Deon, uh, job on DeAndre Hopkins. And I think it was a reason that DeAndre Hopkins did not have a huge day. But I know that Xavier Howard likes playing better than what he played. And he had those pass interference penalties. He had three of them. Uh, one of them was an offsetting penalty. And one of them, I thought, was kind of ticky-tack. He definitely had one of the three. But I know that, that he likes playing better than that. And I know those penalties really bother him. But he did do a pretty darn good job on DeAndre Hopkins. I think they said... 13 of 15 first-half routes, he was on DeAndre Hopkins, and and they really held DeAndre Hopkins down, which I think was a key to this game.
0: Yeah, I I am going to go with Andy Isabella, the Cardinals receiver, for two things in particular that were squeezed in at the end of the first half and the start of the second half. At the end of the first half, when the Cardinals were trying to maybe get in range for a field goal, and who knows whether or not they would or wouldn't have, there was about a minute left, he catches the pass and he clearly has the first down, and he goes backward and retreats and gives up the yardage, fourth down, and they punt, and the Dolphins drive down and get a field goal. That, that, that's a potential six-point swing if the Cardinals would have kept that drive going. At a minimum, it's a three-point swing by giving them the ball back, and that was just a boneheaded effort by, you know, these guys who are fast. They always think their speed is, number one, going to get them out of any jam, and number two, it's an excuse to go backward because that one step back is going to open it up for 10 steps forward, and it's just unfortunate. Then he had a fumble on the opening kickoff of the second half that originally I thought the Dolphins recovered. I know some of the Dolphins players did. That would have been a disaster, and you get lucky when one of your teammates ends up getting the ball at the bottom of the scrum, but you got to hold on to the football. That could have been game over. That could have been lights out for the for the Cardinals a lot earlier than it would have been if the Dolphins would have gotten the ball there, Shereen.
1: Yeah, and I, I saw that play, Mike, and I'm like, oh, the Dolphins got this game. This game could be over here if they go punch this in, and, and he did. He just got lucky on that play. You, you've got to hold on to the ball. We know turnovers are a big factor in, in games, and you can't, definitely can't fumble the opening kickoff the second half. So he got really lucky a teammate – got in the bottom of that scrum and somehow came up with the ball because I don't think they originally had it.
0: Okay, give me a play that stands out to the, the to you that you want to focus on a little bit more.
1: Yeah, there were 5-20 left in the game, Mike, and the Cardinals uh, had 4th and 1. And four plays before that, they had a 4th and 1. And Kyler Murray picked it up on a run, right? They hadn't stopped him all day. They were 2-for-2 two two at that point on 4th down, You think they're in the same formation, which I hate shotgun on on fourth and any kind of short situation. I hate the shotgun, but that's what he does. He does every play out of the shotgun. I get it. So I'm fine with that. But the fact that you hand the ball to Chase Edmonds, who had no chance to pick up the first down, why are you trusting Kyler Murray at that point to pick up the first down? He'd done it twice for you earlier Keep the ball in Kyler Murray's hands. Let him run around. He's going to make a play, and more than likely, he's going to make the first down.
0: Yeah, I agree with you, and I think the reason why they didn't give it to Murray was because he got hit hard the play before, and you rarely see that happen. That may have freaked out Cliff Kingsbury. I hate that shotgun formation run, though, third and short. You know, I don't know why they won't line up Kyler Murray under center, unless literally he would be under center because he's so short. But but <laughs> y- y- you, you, you have to give the running back a chance to get it. And when you're starting flat-footed when you get the ball, you don't have the same head of steam when you bang into the line when you need just a few inches. The, the play that, that I first want to mention briefly, the decision to kick the field goal on fourth and one late yeah. when Zane Gonzalez comes short on a 49-yarder. Nobody Who's short on a 49-yarder? I don't know why they kicked Nobody. the field goal. But, but beyond that, nowadays, it used to be a big deal to make a 49-yarder back when they kicked straight on. Now, a 49-yarder may as well be a 35-yarder. And it's, it's amazing that that thing fell short. The one other play that I want everybody to go back and take a look at, because I'm trying to figure out what really happened here. Preston Williams, when he scores his touchdown, he jumps up, he celebrates. Next thing you know, he's limping on the sideline. He's carted off. There's speculation that it was something that occurred during the celebration but watch Jalen Thompson, number 34 the Cardinals. He kind of does the Tristan Hill, Chris Carson, barrel roll. Shereen, I don't know if you had a chance to look at that, but but there was one extra roll that was a little too much, and maybe it didn't register with Preston Williams that his ankle had gotten twisted, but uh, I, I, I I suggest everyone, we got to take a break, but go look at that if you have NFL Game Pass because it it looked like it was a little too much from Thompson and maybe that contributed to the injury to Preston Williams. All right, we're going to take a break. When we return, MDS joins us for Week 9 Awards. We'll do that when PFTPM continues right after this. A lot of people out there enjoy Sunday night football and this week it's the Patriots and the Ravens. Week 9 it was the Buccaneers and the Saints, not nearly as good as we thought it would be. Oh well, week 9 awards time. MDS joins us. Let's do it like we always do. We'll get right to it. Best offensive player of the week. MDS, who do you have?
2: I have DeVonte Adams who had 10 catches for 173 yards against the 49ers. Could have had more if the Packers hadn't taken their collective foot off the gas late in that game. And you know, he just couldn't be covered, and when he is playing at the level he's playing at and Aaron Rodgers is playing at the level he's at, I don't know that there's a better team in the NFC. I, I think they may be the best team in the NFC. They're a better team than I thought they were going to be this season, and Devontae Adams may be the second biggest reason for that after Aaron Rodgers. Mm-hmm.
1: My choice, and Mike, I'm stealing your pick. You had him last week. I'm picking him this week. Dalvin Cook, the Vikings running back, had a career-high 206 yards, two touchdowns. He was fantastic in that game. And, Mike, as you've talked about, he has put himself firmly in the MVP conversation with the way he played. He's he leads the league now with 858 rushing yards. Has a league best 12 rushing touchdowns. He is rolling, and the Vikings are rolling because of Dalvin Cook.
0: His last four games, other than the one where he suffered the injury early in the third quarter with only 65 yards rushing when he exited, he's averaged 170 yards per game the last four. If he could keep that average up, and that's a big if, he'll he'll obliterate. Single season rushing record, so we'll see what Dalvin Cook does. But his odds for MVP have gone from plus 8,000 to plus 4,000, and I think by next week they'll be even lower than that. All right, for me, it's Josh Allen. He had an awesome day for the Buffalo Bills one day after his grandmother died. She died unexpectedly. He was very emotional. Sean McDermott, the coach of the Bills, gave him the option to not play. He chose to play, he played, he played incredibly well. He's back onto the fringes of the MVP consideration, and the Bills knocked Russell Wilson out of the driver's seat although he's still the favorite he went from negative territory to plus territory in the betting odds but Josh Allen and the Bills re themselves I think they got knocked loopy by the Titans and then by the Chiefs and it took them a couple of weeks to get their footing now their footing is back and if they can build on what they did Sunday against the Seahawks off they go and they will be in the conversation for one of the best teams in the AFC all right best defensive player MDS who do you have I'm going to
2: stick with the Bills and take A.J. Klein, the Bills linebacker, who had five tackles, two sacks, a forced fumble, four quarterback hits. He knocked down a pass. He, he was all over the place. And, you know, I really like the way the Bills have built this roster. And it's moves like signing Klein for three years, $6 million a year, not the highest-end contract for a linebacker, but a good, solid contract. For a good, solid player, I think that's how you build a winning roster, not breaking the bank for the the top-of-the-line free agents. I think the Bills have done a great job, and A.J. Klein is a big part of what they're doing this year.
1: I thought this was the hardest category because there were tons of candidates we could have picked. And I went with the Pittsburgh Steelers simply because on Friday, Mike, we talked about what we couldn't wait to see. And I couldn't wait to see which Pittsburgh Steelers defender would be defensive player of the week. And I think it was Minka Fitzpatrick. He had an interception in the end zone. Dallas was at the Pittsburgh five. And if they had scored there, they would have been up 26 to 15. Uh, early in the fourth quarter, and it might have been over for the Pittsburgh Steelers in trying to stay undefeated. But he made that play, and then Dallas got down, obviously, for the last play, and Mika Fitzpatrick was there in coverage Uh, on the very last play against C.D. Lamb, and they gave him a pass breakup for it. I don't think the pass ever had a chance, uh, but he was there in coverage and and never gave him a chance to to make that play. I thought he played terrific, and when he plays like that, with the way that defensive front plays, Pittsburgh is definitely the best defensive football.
0: I'm going to stay in that division and go to Baltimore. Chuck Clark had a moment for the Ravens. It was desperately needed. They were sluggish. They were sleepwalking. They were still dealing with, I think the psychology of losing a game that they should have won the prior week. And they just weren't making it happen against the Colts. And, You know, I'm home this year, but I'm connected to the NBC viewing room. And Chris Sims was saying, man, the Ravens look awful today. They're not going to win. The Colts are running all over them. And then the ball was out and Chuck Clark scooped it up, ran over Phillip Rivers on the way to the end zone. And that was the spark that reset the game, turned it around and opened the door for the Colts to lose to the Ravens and for the Ravens to get that that loss to the Steelers out of their system. All right. Best rookie for week nine MDS. Who do you have?
2: Well, I probably took the obvious choice, but I have Tua Tagovailoa, who I didn't really like the Dolphins' decision a week earlier to go to Tua. I thought they should have stayed with Ryan Fitzpatrick while he was playing quite well, and I didn't think Tua played that well in winning the first game. He played very well in winning their second game against the Cardinals. I really liked how in command he was of the offense. He could make plays with his legs, with his arm. I won't be surprised if Tua takes the Dolphins to the playoffs, and when they first made that move, I really thought it was a decision that was basically announcing they don't see themselves as playoff contenders this year. So I liked everything I saw from Tua enough that I've kind of changed my outlook on this whole Dolphins season.
1: MDS, I'm going with a player and a losing cause, but I think this is the game that we were all waiting for Jerry Judy to have. He was terrific. It was his first 100-yard game. He had seven catches, 125 yards, and a touchdown. And really these last two games, I think we've started to see who this guy is. They've been his two best games back to back and he and drew Locke have found some timing and i think he's caught up to maybe some of these other rookie receivers and we're going to see him have a great second half to this season
0: i thought about going with jaguars rookie quarterback jake luton but he'll have to settle for me just not calling him luke jayton anymore he's earned jake (laughs) luton And the Jaguars have earned some respect for using sixth-round picks on quarterbacks who end up being halfway decent between Gardner Minshew last year and Jake Luton this year. But since they didn't win, sorry, Jake, you don't get Rookie of the Week. Shane Lemieux, the interior offensive lineman for the New York Giants who was thrust into the starting lineup last week and did very well against the Buccaneers, brings in a nastiness, brings an edge that this Giants offensive line needs. And he's going to be one of the cornerstones to building the Giants into something better than they've been. And when they won the Super Bowl in 2011 and before that in 2007, what did they have? They had a great defensive line. They had a great offensive line. And it looks like Lemieux is going to work out. They need him to influence Andrew Thomas to maybe play with a little more of a mean streak. But you need that that what Jim Mora, the younger, used to call dirtbag mentality. You need a little bit of that at the line of scrimmage when you're engaged in hand-to-hand combat to impose your will on the, the opposing defense. And lemieux got that, so he's my pick. All right, Coach of the Week, MDS, who do you have?
2: This will be a little unconventional, but I have Joe Judge. And I know the Giants are not exactly a great team here with Joe Judge leading the way, but I'm starting to see some progress. And I like the way they are playing. They beat Washington on Sunday over the last four They're two and two, and the losses were by one point and two point. I mean, mean, they're they're playing competitively each week, and I think Joe Judge kind of has them trending in the right direction. Obviously, the only way they make the playoffs is if the NFC East proves to be the worst division ever, and that may happen. But I like what Joe Judge has his players playing like. I, I think that they need another year for the talent to catch up, But they look like they're playing competitive football with Joe Judge as their coach.
1: MDS, I'm going unconventional, too, because we sat here and said, oh, my gosh, what are the Saints going to do against all these Buccaneers weapons? Well, defensive coordinator Dennis Allen, the Aggie great, had a plan, and the plan was great, and he is Tom Brady's kryptonite, three interceptions, three sacks. They own Tom Brady, and Dennis Allen did a fantastic job with that Saints defense.
0: I've got Raheem Morris now three and one as the interim head coach of the Atlanta Falcons. The challenge is going to be doing enough over the balance of the season against some pretty tough opponents. The Buccaneers, twice. The Saints, twice. The Chiefs, the Raiders. Good luck with all of that, Falcons, but The challenge for guys like Rich McKay and Arthur Blank, pierce through whatever the final score is and ask yourself, is Raheem Morris the answer for this team going forward? It's entirely possible. They just want a new direction altogether after the way the past few years have gone, but... Maybe their, their best play is going to be to keep Raheem Morris. And if nothing else, give him an opportunity. Give him a couple of years to see if he could be the right guy because if you let him go and he goes somewhere else and becomes a great head coach, you're going to wish that you had kept him around. That's it for this edition, not, not, not the show, just this segment. I almost, th- I almost ended the show nine minutes prematurely. That wouldn't have been good for anybody. We'll be back with the final segment of PFTPM right after this.
2: Is it crazy to bring up the idea of taking a quarterback with the third pick or the second yes. pick, if you may have it?
0: Yes.
1: You ask me if it's crazy to bring the idea up, and I'm answering you. Yes.
2: <laughs> We're playing <laughs> games here, guys, but it, it's not the thing to be talking about at all. You know, Dak is our quarterback.
0: We talked about this yesterday as related to Stephen Jones. Monday comments on 105.3 The Fan. Tuesday, it was Jerry echoing the same attitude. And, Shereen, here's what I can't reconcile. All the things they say about Dak publicly with their refusal to give him what he wants. They act like an organization that will essentially give him a blank check. But they have a hard limit on what they're willing to pay him. And they are on a collision course to go through this again next year When Dak's franchise tag will be 37 million plus, the salary cap will be as low as 175. The only way to reduce that number is to do a long term deal. And Dak's not going to approach it any differently than he did this year. He's still going to want a four year deal, he's still going to want a a contract that reflects 37 million for the first year as a starting point. So, when are they going to bring together what they say and what they do?
1: Yeah, and my when I'm hearing him say that, Dak's our quarterback, my, my thought is he is. Uh, he's not coming back this year from his ankle injury, and he's not under contract for next year, so you're going to have to sign him or franchise tag him to bring him back. And as you pointed out yesterday, the, the total contract for a, a first-round draft pick, if they were to draft one of those quarterbacks, would be less than what they will pay Dak. I just think you keep all options open at this point if you're the Dallas Cowboys. You don't say, we're going to rule this out or we're going to rule that out. Everything's on the table because this guy's not signed to a long-term deal.
0: Yeah, and look, now that you know that your team is not going to be competitive for a playoff spot, and and, and I guess in theory they could still win the division, but come on. (laughs) You only win by losing. You only win by rising as high in the standings for the draft as you can. Get the highest draft position possible. And if you're in position to take Trevor Lawrence, I don't know why you don't seriously consider it. And I definitely don't know why you take that card off the table now, other than as we talked about yesterday, nothing they say now matters, Shereen they can still do whatever they want to do no. they can they absolutely can and they will so
1: forget what they say
0: all right that's it thanks shereen thanks to MDS. here's some chris sims unbuttoned we'll see you tomorrow for another pftpm